All right, how about a little John chapter 7? <laughs> <laughs> this is an amazing part of the Bible. Finally getting to really teach it, so it's kind of exciting for me. So, we're in that part of John's Gospel where opposition to Jesus is growing. It's not because he did something wrong. It's human antipathy towards God manifesting itself more and more. And the more he displays himself, the more his, these people come against him. So, you know, everybody wants the Messiah, but they all want the Messiah in their image, in the, the way they want him to be. And the Messiah they want is, well, sometimes it's a provider of everything that they think they need the most, you know. In chapter 6, we saw this Galilean crowd that cared for bread, I mean, physical bread, in their tummies more than for the kingdom of God or reconciliation with God. Others wanted a free nation, freed from the Roman dominion, and that's what they cared about the most. And the religious leaders of Jesus' own synagogue, we saw, reject him as the bread of life. So John says in uh, chapter 6, verse 66, he said, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Then in chapter 7, we saw last time that Jesus' brothers, who John identifies as not believing in him, his own brothers, try to goad him into going to Jerusalem and putting on a big show and showing himself in a flashy sort of way. And um, they did that out of their mocking, I think, but certainly not out of faith. And they were very unconcerned for his safety. So Jesus tells them in chapter 7, verse 6 and 7, he says, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. It's always your time, unbelievers. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. That's an incredibly profound text, John 7, 7. Why do people hate Jesus? Because he testifies that they're evil, that their world is evil. So if you don't want to hear that, you turn against him. And that pretty much explains the human condition right there. Man's desire is to exchange the real God for a God they're comfortable with. And we see that all around us all the time. A God I can make in my own image. It's funny because people, um, some people that are flat out like serious atheists, like major atheists, they say, you just make God in your image. No, we don't. That's not the God I want. Um, it's the God I need though because he knows me better than I do. I would not have chosen the God that actually exists. But um, I would not have, in my, if he was made in my image, he'd be completely different. But who he really is, is way better than what I would have come up with. Way better. So I take him, I take him for who he says he is. But people prefer affirmation to repentance. So they want a God that's gonna affirm them and not call on them to change. So in our culture, you know, people often talk about their faith with this phrase. And this is pretty new. I don't think people used to do this, but they say, my God is a whatever. And they start describing the God they want there to be, you know, that's in their own mind. And so as though what I want is what exists, which doesn't work in the real world. Actually, you know, I want this. I want that. But you can't, you can hope for those things, or earthly things, but you don't get to make God in your own image. That's, that's not okay. My God is a person exactly like a 21st century woke sociology professor at UCLA. That's who my <laughs> God is. Or 
My god is a Viking warrior god of Odin. That's the god of angry men trying to reassert themselves in a culture where they're marginalized. That's, that's the god. There actually are people that want to worship Odin now because of that, you know, the, the, the man god thing. The modern American god is never holy and he's never a loving, he's never loving enough to tell you the truth. The god, they, they always want a loving god but not a god that loves you enough to tell you the truth. So, um, Jesus identifies all men and women as having evil in their hearts and that's why the people hate him and oft that people often actually act on those evil inclinations in different ways. So Christ is quite hated. He said that 2,000 years ago in the living room of a house in Capernaum and it's an absolute fact of every human being alive today. So people really hate God examining them according to their righteousness. They don't want him to do that and if they can push that off or um, come up with some weird way to satisfy him though that's what they choose instead of accepting what he's done for us so they hate it they they hate that God judges us and um, whether they're religious people or irreligious people it, it doesn't really matter so Jesus brothers were part of this world they would have been religious people but they don't see anything special about him because he didn't do any miracles all his growing up years he they they walked 40 minutes to Sephora, worked on buildings and did construction together and then walked home. And Jesus was always a goody-goody, but you know, they didn't see anything super miraculous about him until he started his ministry. So his brothers were part of the world of pride and unbelief. So Jesus had to consider that hatred when he's making his plans. And of course, he's always doing what the Father tells him to do. Um, the Father guides him and tells him where to go and what to say. He says that about himself. The Lord tells me, the Father tells me what to say. So he says to his brothers, he says, you guys go on down to the feast because they were trying to get him to go down to this feast and put on a show. And he said, you guys go on down. Uh, he's going to wait. So he, he does wait. So in verse 10 of chapter 7, we learn that Jesus waits a few days and then he goes in secret. And then in verse 11, in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders are seeking him out, but they don't find him. So in the first few days of the feast, it's an eight-day thing. They don't see him, so they kind of give up on worrying about him. And in verse 12, we see among the common people attending the feast, this low-key discussion about Jesus. So, um, it says in verse 12, there was much, now this is how my Bible reads it. I've got a New American Standard 1995. But this is a, there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man, while others were saying no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Now my Bible uses the word grumbling, which is probably not the best, translation of that word that that word can mean that but other Bibles might say murmuring which I think is a better word or whispering even which is a better word I'll tell you why they're whispering <laughs> here in a second but um, so people are of mixed opinions but Jesus is being discussed quietly because verse 13 yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews when John says the Jews he means the leadership Pharisees priests uh, high priest, uh, the top people in the religious structure. That's who he's talking about. So, because uh, he'll, and, and you got to pay attention to who's talking. So just like we saw last time, the Jews said, well, if that's, that's the leadership. The crowd, that's the average Joe Dokes kind of people. And here he's going to divide up the crowd in different groups because they're at a feast. I'll explain that in a minute. But pay attention to who's talking in this. It get, it's a lot more confusing if you don't do that. So anyway, um, for fear of the Jews, um, so all talk of him is discouraged by the leadership. That's why they're afraid of the Jews. Leon Morris puts it this way. He says, the talking was mostly, quote, suppressed discussion in low voices, in corners, and among friends. So people you can, that can talk about it. 
That's the kind of stuff they're saying. But they're keeping it quiet. Then in verse 14, Jesus does show up. So it's the middle of the feast. He shows up. He's in the temple. Not with fanfare like his brothers. Not with an entourage or anything like that. He just shows up. And he, he goes under one of the great giant porticos in the great temple that Herod had built. And those are those huge columned overhanging porches around the actual temple structure. They're on the outside. And a lot of stuff went on in those places. There were a lot of uh, classes going on and rabbis teaching. It's a normal place for that kind of thing to happen. So Jesus walks in there. They, were, they, they thought he wasn't going to be there. He shows up all of a sudden, not with fanfare. He just goes in there and starts teaching. And people recognize him. Some of them, they start, he starts collecting a crowd around him. They start listening. And uh, we're not told the content of what he's saying because John's purpose in telling us this story is to present the response to him. The response to his presence and Jesus' response then to his opponents. So that's what we're looking at here today. So verse 14. When it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews were then astonished saying, how has this man become learned having never been educated? So he said the Jews. So who's that? Leader. Thank you. Good girl. One person's paying attention. <laughs> so, so this is the first record we have of him actually teaching in the temple. In, in John's gospel. So in chapter 2. Jesus started his ministry. Right after he came out of the desert. After he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Came to see John the Baptist. And he shot straight to the temple. But he didn't teach there. He walked in there and blasted the money changers. And kicked them out. That's what he did. He, he made a very public display of himself then. Because he was saying. This is my father's house. I'm the son. And you're not doing this anymore in here. So remember the only words we have recorded from that are. Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Do you remember that? His disciples remembered what it was written. Zeal for your house will consume me. Do you remember that part? And then he also said. Because they, they were coming at him. And he said destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. And, and then John says he was talking about the temple of his body. So that's how he introduced himself to the larger world at the heart of the spiritual life of Israel. Right in the temple there he did that. That's how he introduced himself. So he came to the temple in chapter 5 as well. He didn't put on a big show there. He didn't kick anybody out. He just found a man in this vast sea of people outside, this, outside the gates of Jerusalem at the pool of Bethesda. All these people... Um, laying there trying to get healed just and he picked out a man and he made him completely well a man that had been an invalid an absolute invalid for 38 years hadn't walked a step for 38 years and Jesus heals him he gets up he starts walking around carrying his pallet and everybody's all uh, it was a marvelous miracle the problem is Jesus did it on the Sabbath he did it on the Sabbath so the priests and the Pharisees were royally upset because Jesus told the man pick up your little bed and, and walk and he does. And he's carrying a load on the Sabbath. Oh my goodness. So chapter 5 verse 15 says they were persecuting Jesus. And then in verse 18 of chapter 5 it's, um, it says. For this reason therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. The Jews when he says that it's the leadership. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath. But also calling God his own father. Making himself equal with God. So they decide to kill him for blasphemy and for violating the Sabbath. Now that did give Jesus a chance to lay out before them a very clear explanation of who he is. So in chapter 5, I'm going to read part of this because just to kind of remind you of the background to chapter 7 is what happened in chapter 5. The last time he was in the temple, okay? 
So John chapter 5 verse 20 for example, it says the Father, this is Jesus speaking, the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing and the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son so that, and here's the key line, all may honor the Son even as equal to the honor the way as they honor the Father. So all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Sense, sending is an important idea here too. So truly I say to you, verse 24 of chapter 5, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly I say to you an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And then down in verse 37 of chapter 5 Jesus says, And the Father who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe him whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these that testify about me. Then verse 40. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So the, the clarity of those claims that he made the last time he was in the temple. The father loves the son. He's given all judgment to the son. The son should have equal honors with the father. The son has life in himself. The father gave him authority to judge and the scriptures testify of him. And all this and more he said the last time he was there and they remember. They remember. So now he's back. They have never stopped since chapter 5 seeking his life. And that's why early in chapter 7 it says he was staying in the north in Galilee. He wasn't coming down into Judea because their authority was less prominent up north but around Judea and around Jerusalem that's where they ran everything. So um, they were waiting for him this time. That was the next feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. They were waiting for him to come and he didn't show up. And then suddenly he shows up after it's been going on for a while. So he's drawing a crowd and as a master teacher they're no doubt listening carefully and enjoying him. So the religious leaders take notice, he's here, he's here. And they gather to listen, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, and they're surprised. And you know how it is when you're supposed to hate somebody? Like our whole group hates Jesus. Here's why, he's a blasphemer, he, worked, he did something on the Sabbath, told somebody to work on the Sabbath. So they're, they're all upset about him. So you're supposed to hate someone and you don't really know them, but you know that um, you're in this group so you're supposed to hate that person. Sort of like our political world, right? So. Um, but you, you have the approved bad opinion of that person because all of your colleagues despise him. It's that kind of a thing. So while Jesus is teaching, he's really good at it. He's really good. Too good. And too different. So how could a carpenter from the backwaters of Galilee be so adept at handling the word of God, the scriptures, and, and make pronouncements about the scriptures with absolute authority. How could, how could he do that? 
So one of the leaders just can't contain himself. So um, Jesus is not an approved teacher. So he speaks very loudly in verse 15. How has this man become learned, having never been educated? I mean, the implication is that Jesus is just giving untested and unsanctioned opinions, and he's out of step with the mainstream of Jewish thought, and so we don't know what he's teaching, but it's probably very much like what he teaches all through the New Testament there in the Gospels and stuff, so the Sermon on the Mount would be the great example. But Jesus decides to answer that voice directly. So verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine. How did, it, how did you get this without an education? My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So this idea of him being the sent one is cre- critical to understanding this, the key thing here. So when talking to Jewish leaders, Jesus often refers to his having been sent. Because that is, they need to acknowledge that God sent him. And they can't judge him like he's just some rube, you know. And John the Baptist, the only living prophet, had testified that he saw the Spirit of God descend on Jesus and um, they should have believed him. But anyway, that's it. So he's saying, I'm not self-taught, I'm God-taught. So God sent him. And you can see Jesus as God-taught in his teaching because it's so wonderful. In fact, you know, I've been teaching the Bible for a long time and I know how it works, like how do you teach it and how you don't teach it. Now, if you watch television, you see a lot of people who don't know how to teach it because they make up their own interpretations of it all the time. But um, Jesus knew God's word so perfectly and he's so precise in interpreting it, it's actually amazing. And for somebody that's been trained in doing that, when you actually see how he taught, he never misuses the Bible, ever. Now preachers do that all the time. It's, it's kind of one of our favorite things to do is misuse the Bible, but, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to do that. But um, it happens all the time, but he never does. It's perfect, it's always, kind of blows you away perfect. And sometimes it's like super fine point he finds in the scripture that makes it all make sense. And to some, even, even the, just a, 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 a very fine bit of um, not just wording but even tenses and things like that you know we're going to see that later in John in chapter 8 but just amazing how he handles the Bible so um, you don't only see that in his teaching but in those places in the Gospels where theologians try to trip him up so you got the Sadducees and the Pharisees who hate each other and have totally different theologies and they've got their they're kind of like their prize knock them out arguments, you know, the gotcha arguments that they use. And so they try to using them on Jesus and he just answers them like that, answers them like that. He's just, and it's all biblical, it's perfectly solid and there's just no way to get around it. That, that's who he is. So when he says my teaching is not mine, it's him who sent me, he's, he's right on with there. But for those who are hearing him that day, how can they know that he's been sent? He's saying it's not me, it's, it's, the, it's the one who sent me. That's whose teaching I'm giving you. How would they know? Well, his answer to that is really fascinating and it actually depends on what the person hearing is committed to. Verse 18, no, verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, whose will? The one who sent him, that's God. He will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He's saying you can tell if what I'm saying to you is from God or if it's just me talking. And that's the word willing here. If anyone is willing. And that word willing can also be translated just desire. If your heart's desire above all else. Is to do God's will. 
then you will know if Jesus is just some preacher making it up or you will know if the Father gave him. That's an interesting test. It's a very interesting test. It's not subjective. It's not purely subjective because the condition of the heart matters. So it's not just, well, I think it sounds like God. No, it's not that. It's you are a person who is absolutely committed to doing God's will. And if you're that kind of a person, you will understand that his teacher, teaching came from the Father. And it's not, he's not making it up. That's what he's saying. For example, the Pharisees, what did they love the most? What does Jesus say they loved the most? The, the respect of men. That was, even though they were religious teachers and leaders and memorized the Bible and all that, their primary thing in life was to be respected by other men. So, so doing God's will is not the first thing for them. And that's just true in so many different ways for so many different people. We've, we all start that way. But number one for them was the respect of men. And that directs, that heart desire of the approval of men directs what they will believe. And it directs it in the wrong direction. That's really important to understand. So they won't find the truth. So your average American, um, all kinds of other things get in the way, right? Does your average American say to do God's will is the great reality of my life? No, that's not how they think about it. God's will is totally take it or leave it. It's a cafeteria world, right? I like that part of God's will, that part I don't know. That kind of a thing. Desires for this or desires for that that come above God's will will keep you from understanding that what Jesus teaches is what God wants for you. It puts us in a bad place to decide if Jesus is sent by God or not. But if God's will is truly first, then when you encounter Jesus, you're just going to know he's, it's true. You're just going to know. It's an internal thing that God does with you. That reminds me of the beatitude Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, right at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That doesn't mean you're completely pure. It means you're singularly devoted. Your heart is pure in its devotion. If you, if you have that, you will understand. So true knowledge really depends on the right desires. That's what he's saying. Then in verse 18, Jesus gives us an important way to tell if somebody is preaching or proclaiming their own thoughts. Okay, he's very helpful here. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. That actually is how you tell. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. So that's the key distinction and it's usually very noticeable. You can usually tell if a teacher or a preacher's primary purpose is, is to honor God or to honor themselves. You can usually tell. Now some people are really good and you can't tell but usually you can tell. But Jesus is the perfect model of caring about God's glory first and always. Of course he's the son. Right? So that is what he's going to care about. He not only speaks the truth, but he says he is true. That's interesting. He, because that phrase he is true is used by Jesus of God. And he only uses it of God. So suddenly here he's going to use it of himself. The only person described as true. Now he says things are true. This fact is true. This scripture is true. But when he talks about a human being or a person, he never says a human being is true true that is a true person but he says it of God all the time like John 3:33 he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this that God is true 
That's, that's Jesus talking in John 3. John 7, 28, Jesus will say, we're going to get there later, he who sent me is true. In John chapter 8, verse 26, he who sent me is true. It's always God. So in verse 18 here, when he says, the one seeking the glory of the one who sent him is true. The one seeking the glory is true. And that's the son. Then he's equating himself. This is another way he equates himself with God. He does it over and over again in this book. So um, just like 1 John 5, 20 um, affirms the very same idea that the Son is true. Here's 1 John. This is John's letter. 1 John 5, 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. So that's the Father. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. So the Son is He who is true just like the Father is He who is true. And then he says, this is the true God and eternal life. Talking about the Son. This is, this is the true God and eternal life. That's 1 John 5.20. Okay, so from here, Jesus takes a good look of all these leaders around him. Leaders of the faith. And he, Jesus likes to ask questions. So he shoots two questions at them. So verse 19, back in John 7. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So he says in verse 18 that he is true, talking about himself, and there is no unrighteousness in him. And he can say this because he's sent by the Father. And yet they're seeking his death. How can they do that? Seek the death of a righteous man. So they're erring in a, the most egregious way you can, seeking the death of somebody that God has sent. So now look at verse 20. Who's speaking in verse 20? The crowd. Okay, right? Verse 15, it was the Jews. Here it's the crowd. So these are other people, not part of that. The crowd answered, and obviously it's not all the, the whole crowd all just saying in one voice, oh, this, but somebody yells out of the crowd, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. I mean, they, just, they, don't, they don't know why he would say that, that they're seeking to kill him, right? And they're saying that to Jesus. Now, the reality is, the Jews, being the leadership, these are all Jews here, but... The, the leadership, they are seeking to kill him. But this person in the crowd doesn't know that. This is part of the crowd, okay? So they, so they think Jesus is talking crazy. What do you mean you're saying they seek to kill you? So, but chapter 5, verse 18, which we read earlier, um, it did say they were seeking to kill him. And then in verse 1 of chapter 7, it says they were seeking to kill him. So they were doing that. But this is a large feast. It's a pilgrimage feast, which means not only do people come from all over Israel, they come from Turkey, they come from Italy, they come from all over the Roman Empire. So this is a huge con conglomeration of people who aren't local. Some are local. But most are not. So people are coming from everywhere. It's a pilgrimage, right? So they're coming from all over the place. So they don't know the local situation. They don't know what the Pharisees are up to locally. The locals probably did know because Jerusalem isn't that big of a city actually when no, there aren't massive crowds there. So, you know, talk happens. Hey, they're trying to kill Jesus. Those guys are after that, that Messiah person, that prophet, right? So this person yells out, he has a demon. He's bonkers. He's possessed. Jesus, what a terrible thing to say about your betters, right? They want to kill you. Shameful to say that. They, they, that's a terrible thing to say. And that all goes back to what happened the last time in chapter 5 in the temple when they started deciding to kill him. That, that, that's what they wanted to do with him. Jesus must be destroyed. 
they got that ball rolling way back in chapter 5. They had attacked him for healing on the Sabbath as, as though he was out working in the fields or working in his carpenter shop or something like that. They were attacking him for working on the Sabbath. And Jesus goes to that issue now. That's what's happening here in our John 7 thing. And he does it with, again, a perfect understanding of the scriptures, a profound understanding. They were bending the scriptures. He's using it properly. We discussed back in chapter 5 how wildly Jewish theologians in the first century had twisted what Moses had said about the Sabbath and just added and piled on all kinds of tradition onto there. And so Jesus comes at them sort of sideways here in chapter 7. He's going to do that by giving them an example of a way that they break the Sabbath. Okay, that's what he's doing. So verse 21, Jesus answered and said to them, I did one deed and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses gave you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. In other words, it really started with Abraham, but Moses codified it in the law, right? And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. Hmm. Verse 23, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? So his argument's really simple. The law requires that a newborn baby boy in Israel be circumcised on the eighth day, right? Isn't that right? What if that day falls on the Sabbath? What do you do? Do you do it on the seventh day? Do you do it on the ninth day? No, they always do it on the eighth day. Well, aren't you doing a work on the Sabbath? That was a perfect question. It's just perfect. So Moses intended, and they themselves acknowledged by their own practice, that some things can be done on the Sabbath. You're just not supposed to go out in the fields or chop wood or work. That's what they mean by work, right? Not do something that God requires or something. So build a new fence, make a table, that's work. Don't do that. But make a man well, yes, that's okay. You can be a doctor on the Sabbath. So Jesus made, um, using his own words, an entire man well. He, body and soul, body and spirit. He was a new man. Mercy is not forbidden by the law of Moses. In other places, Jesus actually argues, if, if your donkey falls into a pit on the Sabbath, do you get it out? And yes, you could. You were allowed to do that on the Sabbath to get it out. You, could ha you can help on the Sabbath. You can do that. So, mercy is not forbidden just as certain rituals that are commanded by God are not forbidden, like circumcision. That's why he's bringing that up. So finally, Jesus challenges them in verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Have a biblical point of view on these things. Don't make up your own rules. Don't do it according to just because you say it looks like this. So now we hear some thoughts from the locals. And they have a better grasp of the situation. So the first person was out of the crowd. And now we're going to hear from one of the locals. So verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem. See how he specifically mentions that? So now we're talking about people that are in on the inside. of their, They've been part of what's been going on the last few years. He says, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? See, they know, right? Jerusalem is a small city. If you're a Pharisee and you know they're all trying to kill Jesus, you, you told somebody and it got around and they're passing out information, right? Just like everybody. Verse 26. Look, he is speaking publicly and they say nothing to him. They're letting him teach in the temple. So what do they conclude? The rulers do not 
really know that this is the Christ, do they? So now they're thinking, well, maybe he is the Messiah because they, they aren't killing him. Maybe they've got some new information. Maybe something different is going on, right? So this is just a lot of speculation bouncing around in these crowds. That's what, that's what he's talking about here. There's all kinds of stuff going on here. So they're aware, very aware, the locals are, the people that live in Jerusalem, that the authorities are looking to kill Jesus. But even if the leadership won't advertise it, people know it's gotten whispered around. So, verse 26 is really amazing. They take note of the fact that Jesus is speaking and no one's carting him off. They actually notice this. I mean, that doesn't make much sense if you're speaking to if you're seeking to kill him and he's speaking in the temple and teaching, why don't you grab him and kill him? Right? Let's get him arrested, right? Where are the cops? <laughs> so the locals are wondering, are they just going to let him teach? Well, maybe they know something. Maybe something's changed. Maybe he really is the Messiah. Hmm. So from verse 25 and following, John has is, is just been catching things that various people are saying while Jesus is teaching. Sometimes it's to him, sometimes it's about him, right? Just all kinds of stuff going on. So here's another perspective, verse 27. However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. So one common belief of the Jews in the first century, based on Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, although it doesn't teach that, but this was a common interpretation of it, was that Messiah would, would be hidden and then suddenly burst on the scene and come to Jerusalem and change the world. That, that's a common belief. So Jesus has been around for a few years publicly teaching and everyone knows he's from Nazareth so there's all kinds of talk and opinions and lots of confusion but Jesus takes that last comment and he makes a declaration and this is about where he is from okay where he's from. It's a good launching point for the truth here so we know he grew up in Nazareth right they might know that the people there. They might even know he was born in Bethlehem. But unlike everybody else there, and unlike all of us in this room, Jesus did not start his existence when he was born. I did. You did. They did. But not him. He has eternally existed with the Father. The man they are looking for is a true human being, but the person came from heaven. So verse 28, Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, there's that God is true thing, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So that first part there, this kind of reads a little awkward, verse 28, at least in, in my translation here. Um, the first part, you both know me and you know where I am from. You, it, you can read that as a question. In other words, the grammar of the Greek allows for that to be a question. So like the Revised Standard Version translate this, it, translates it this way. You know me and you know, you know me and you know where I come from? So it's like a question. So you're saying you know me and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. So that's how that one translates it. Um, or it could be ironic. The ironic statement, which I actually think this is probably right. So Jesus is repeating what they say. So, you know me and where I come from. Get how that plays, you know? So we don't have the tone of voice, obviously. We're reading something, so. You think you do, right? So you know me and you know where I come from. You think you do. Yet I haven't come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I like that version. I think that's kind of the meaning here. 
Any way you take it, Jesus is telling them this. You don't know God yet. But you can find him. And that's why Jesus has been sent. Verse 29, I know him because I am from him. And he sent me. So John pauses here to tell us two really interesting things. The religious authorities did want to arrest him. So that person in the crowd had said, they aren't, they aren't arresting him. So maybe he is the Messiah, right? So why didn't they seize him? John doesn't say, except for that it wasn't the time. It just wasn't the time. Who's in charge of the time? Well, God is the, always in charge of the time, ultimately, right? So Jesus was perfectly safe if God wanted him to be perfectly safe, right? So something fouled up or delayed their plans or something, because God always wins. Um, you know, the proverb says that, um, well, verse 30, let me read verse 30. They were seeking to seize him, and no man laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. That's the only reason he gives. The hour had not yet come. So it wasn't time in God's time. Proverbs 16.9 says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps, right? Directs his steps. So who knows what happened? So you could just kind of picture in the high priest's office and there's a bunch of guys in there looking kind of stupid and he says, I told you guys to arrest him. Well, we were going to boss, but two of my guys got sick and then they, they, something they ate at the market and I left my handcuffs at home or whatever, you know. And I finally got to get somebody to come with me and when we were going down to arrest him, then the big crowd came out from the, the sacrifices and then we cut, it took us like 20 minutes to get through the big crowd there and by then he was gone. That could have been that or anything could have happened. But anyway, they couldn't do it. So, because God's in control of all the circumstances around, right? So, it didn't happen. Next week, actually, we'll see, John will give us the actual reason he wasn't arrested, which is even more fun. But, um, so come back next week. But the second thing John tells us is that some in the crowd did believe. They did believe in Jesus. They simply took the miracles as plain evidence that he must be the Messiah. So verse 31, many of the crowd believed in him and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? I mean, Jesus is doing all these miracles and they're like, well, like who else does that? <laughs> so yeah, he must be the Messiah. So a lot of people did believe it at that level anyway. So John uses the word many there in verse 31. Many in the crowd believed in him and they're talking about Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. Well, the Pharisees hear this and they run off to the chief priest. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. So now they're sending those guys. That might take a little time to get all that going, running there and getting the conversation and getting the guys and then going after him. But Jesus makes a very strong declaration. And we don't know if he spoke this while they were away or after they came back, but here it is, verse 33. Therefore Jesus said, for a little while longer, I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. That's an amazing statement. That's a remarkable statement. Where is he going? To the one who sent him. Do they even begin to understand this? No. Verse 35. The Jews then said to one another. Who's the Jews? The leadership. Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Is he, he's not intending to go to the, to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? Is he going to Turkey? Is he going to Athens? Where's he going? What is this statement? He said, you will seek me and will not find me for where I am, you cannot come. 
No, he's going to the one who sent him. That's what he said, not to the Greeks. The Greeks didn't send him. The Greeks aren't God. So tragically, he says, where I am, you cannot come. Because they don't believe. They're blind to spiritual realities. They see the Savior of the world as a threat. They want him dead. What a contrast Jesus' words are here to later when he talks to the, to the disciples in the upper room before his crucifixion. John chapter 14, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. That's really different than what he's saying here. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. So to these unbelieving leaders, he says, where I am you cannot come. Because that's what he's talking about, of course, where he's going is his death, resurrection, and ascension back into heaven. And to his own, he says, where I am, you may be also. Very different. They can't understand what Jesus means. They, they really don't want to understand because their hearts are not focused on doing God's will primarily. And that's all John tells us about this particular day. It's really interesting. So in chapter 8, Jesus will address again why they cannot come where he is going. He's going to tell them very plainly. But this day is over. Jesus is not done at the feast. There's one more big day. The big day is the last day of the feast. And he's going to make quite a proclamation there. So Jesus told these people that they have only a little longer. So this is the Feast of Tabernacles. In six months it'll be Passover. And Jesus will die on Passover. So that's what he means by that. Only a little time little time to come with him little while longer to turn from their ways a little while longer to place their trust in him what's the upshot of all of this never delay in coming to Christ never delay never put him off don't presume on his mercy if he is true as he says then come to him bend the knee own him as Lord own him as Savior that's all he asks that's where we need to be Okay, more next time. Let's pray. Lord God, may we always have hearts willing to do your will, wanting to do your will, desiring to do your will. For our Lord promises that with such hearts we will know the truth. So we ask you to give us grace to hold you first in our hearts always and to come when you call. And we thank you for the sent one, your eternal son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.